You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. There were a few, but one that I thought kind of was most uh, recent and a, a good example is um, this past winter, I I got a new Christmas tree. <laughs> so uh, I was really excited about it. It had automatic lights and it was essentially the design is kind of a three-part piece. So you just really easily put it together. So I brought it home and, you know, not even thinking there would be any issue as I'm putting it together, I didn't consider how heavy the tree would be. <laughs> so, so it was, uh, I had to do an earnest effort to put that tree together. And it made me think, how am I going to keep doing this every year? <laughs> so one of the things that it made me reflect upon is when I was a graduate student studying aging in place, I did um, a, a tour of a residential home of an individual, um, she was an architect and her husband was an engineer and they fully designed their home as a, to, to integrate universal design features wherever possible. So it was a very custom home that they did, but it made me remember that one of the things that she was most proud about in her home design is that there were these kind of hidden caseworks and um, in the cabinetry, you could pull out a rolling Christmas tree and at any moment, any time during the year, pull it out, the tree compressed, and then it would open up. And then when you wanted to tuck it away, you'd just uh, lift up the leaves and then push it, roll it back into the space. So it, it's a great example to think about how can we design homes that support and bring uh, to life you know, things that we love, right? The joy of putting up a Christmas tree or whatever it might be for individuals, um, but make it user-friendly and easier so that um, it's it's not a barrier, it's not challenging, and it just supports, you know, again, independent living. In today's day and age, our homes can be as connected as we want them to be. Technology exists to connect our appliances, our lights, heating and air, all sorts of things, to our phones so we can activate them with the tap of a button or a verbal command to Alexa. While the technology is smart and it makes our lives easier, how much thought have we given to the layout or design of our homes to make them equally as functional? Today's conversation with Assistant Professor Maria Delgado takes us along these lines. We discuss aging in place or the ability to live in one's home safely, independently, and comfortably as we get older. But there are many barriers to aging in place, including affordability and local ordinances, but mostly the design of our homes. Dr. Delgado introduces us to universal design standards that aim to make homes more accessible. And we learn about an exciting project her students are doing to build an affordable, sustainable, and visitable tiny home for an older adult. You will hear that Dr. Delgado is looking for older adult volunteers in Northern Colorado who are willing to provide user feedback to her students about their design. If you're interested, see our show notes to email Dr. Delgado. Now on to the episode. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. 
thank you so much for coming on our podcast and just agreeing to come and talk to us about this topic. I have been waiting to talk about this topic for so long, and I'm so excited that we finally found you and found somebody that can come and talk about it. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me and for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, let's let's go there and have that be the first place we get started and and kind of what does it mean to age in place since that's what we're talking about and and what is universal design in regards to aging in place? Yes. So, aging in place I think is the best way to think about it is to be able to live in your home um, and live uh, independently and live autonomously as long as possible, as long as you want. Um, there's so many benefits to living in your home. Um, individuals, you know, build over time a, a sense of network, a community. You have your neighbors, you've got your local grocery stores. Um, so being able to stay in your home as long as possible um, and, and have that structure, if that's what you're looking for, is really important for mental health. And, and, and we have to think about how do we design homes that help to support living, living in them as long as possible. So um, there are different types of um, ways that we can integrate um, different principles, different design elements. And some of these principles are called universal design. So universal design was um, really developed in the late 90s um, by Ron Mace. And Ron Mace was an architect. And he was also an individual that used a wheelchair. Um, and so from his perspective, he really had firsthand experience about how do we interact with buildings and what are the barriers that buildings give us and how can we think about redesigning spaces to support all abilities. Um, so that's why universal is so important because it's it's talking about all everyone, making having everyone be inclusive, having inclusive design be accessible to everyone at no matter what age age you you're at. Um, so a team of researchers, product designers, um, architects at North Carolina State University became, um, you know, developed this universal design standards, which is seven principles that, again, think about design. But the key is, again, that it's design that's accessible for, for all people. And so you can use, whether it's a building or whether it's a product, you can use that design to the greatest extent without having to adapt it or specialize it. So that design already includes that accessible, inclusive nature. So the first principle that they developed was equitable use. And if we're thinking about um, equitable use, that means everyone of all abilities can equally access the building or the product. So a small scale example of that is when we think about like a doorknob and um, how a doorknob was kind of the traditional um, element that we would open a door and now it's an actually a door lever so the reason why a lever is more effective is because you if you have potentially arthritis in your hand or if you're just carrying groceries you might not be able to uh, have that ability to twist while a door lever you could use other parts of your body your elbow to open up the door so again it makes it more inclusive um and in a larger scale there's you know buildings do this all the time. And the first one I thought of was the Ed Roberts campus in Berkeley that really takes accessibility and shares it. Um, and one of the ways that they do it is by, they have a beautiful circular um, ramp in the heart of the building. So we, we, we focus the design um, and share accessibility and, and make it again, the, you know, kind of priority to everyone. 
So smaller scale, the second principle is flexibility and use. So we could think of this as, you know, you know, in terms of products, again, now adjustable desk. So maybe you, some people like to sit or stand. Sometimes you want to just be able to adjust it between. So you're able to configure it to whatever your need is. The third principle is um, simple and intuitive. So thinking about how do we go through buildings in a simple and intuitive way. And in architecture, we can talk about uh, the concept of wayfinding and signage. And wayfinding, whether it's digital or analog, it helps uh, users that are going through the building have a very clear vision of where they're going. Um, and it, it, I've heard it be kind of compared to, have, I don't know if you've ever had IKEA furniture, <laughs> but, but like yep. the <laughs> IKEA instructions, they don't have any words to them. Oh, they're, they're terrible. Picture. Yeah. <laughs> they're terrible. Yeah, maybe that's not the best. But in the sense is that you, you can get through it by looking at the pictures. And that's kind of, you can think about wayfinding through a building. It's not just about words, but using images or arrows or different colors to help communicate people move throughout the building um, in a simple and intuitive way. And then let's see, the fourth one is perceptible information. So, you know, how do we use different architecture features, for example, for, you know, thinking of a building um, to help inform. So oftentimes a fountain uh, could be located in one portion of the building and an individual that might um, have low vision, but have the ability of hearing can use that fountain as a reference point or could, um, you know, use different, different elements with music or noise to help uh, you know, recirculate or orient themselves. And then the other principles are thinking about having tolerance for air. So, you know, designing, just trying to avoid um, hazards. And again, thinking the sixth principle is low physical effort. So in a building, again, we can think of automatic doors or elevators um, that help just an assist or now even with products, right? Car designs, like the, the door opening in the back, if you've got full, your your hands full of groceries, it's just really helpful to be able to have um, automated uh, automated systems that help with low, low effort. And then the seventh um, principle is size and space approach and use. So just being mindful, um, you know, if we have an individual that's uh, utilizing a wheelchair, um, what is that range of that individual? And most of the times, you know, we, re we really try to keep within the range of like 15 inches to 48 inches. So thinking of what can you reach, um, how low can you go or how high can you go when you're in a seated position or even just like the width of the wheelchair itself. Um, you know, typically um, you have to not only be mindful of the wheelchair itself, but the hands of the user that are um, maneuvering the wheelchair. So it's just that the seven principles can be applied to buildings or to products, but they're just bringing to light um, inclusiveness uh, when we think about design. Right. And well, thank you for reviewing all of those first off. But my, my first reaction to hearing that is like, yes, I can see why universal design would be so useful. I can see the benefit of it. But you, like you said, it was you know, a set of standards that came about in the 90s. So I'm imagining that there are millions of houses and, and apartments and buildings around the United States that do not have these standards. 
Yes, actually, I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to create awareness because I, you know, like AARP have, has done studies and 90% of people want to stay in their homes, yet 90% of the homes um, in the United States are not ready to age in place. So it's really about uh, promoting awareness so that individuals can start to think about how can we, you know, what are, what are potentially small things that we can do that can have a big impact? Um, and they can do them themselves. So if we're thinking specifically of like residential homes um, and, and we have someone, you know, that's thinking what, what changes can I make? The kitchen is a really great place to start um, where you could switch, you know, storage, thinking about kitchen storage, right? Maybe changing your shelves to have um, pullout shelves versus, um, you know, just fixed fitted shelves or even upper level shelves. They have a casework where you can lower the shelf so it becomes more reachable. Or um, one of my favorite things with kitchen design is thinking about if you have an island in your kitchen, um, integrating different types of counter heights um, so that it's accessible uh, you know, to an individual that wants to sit or is in a wheelchair as well as um, just maybe a tall individual. And it can look really artistic, um, but again, it has that use and promotes universal design for all. And when we're, you know, thinking about kitchens, um, I think, and just universal design in general, it's really important to have contrast. Um, so thinking about um, having contrast with utilizing or reinforcing contrast through different colors or through different types of materials. So even countertops and casework, because it that contrast helps to define edges. Um, or really having well-lit surfaces. So under cabinet lighting, um, even if it's, you know, a string of lights that you would put underneath, um, they're not maybe custom. It just, lighting can help to, you know, support, um, again, just your ability to use your, and feel feel good in your environment. Um, And, you know, appliances, people can, you know, change out, purchase new appliances. So when you're thinking about that, um, there are different types of appliances that promote, um, now as a, you know, technology has advanced, there's so many sensors that are integrated. There are, um, you know, different ways that appliances open. So like for ovens or microwaves, traditionally they'll swing out kind of a pull down fashion, but you can get appliances that open and have a hinge um, so that they swing out um, to the side which allows if, if you were, you know, in a wheelchair or um, had some sort of ability limitation, it allows you to get closer to that hot item so that you're less likely, you have a better grasp on it. So there's lots of different ways that people could start to make small changes in their home that help to promote um, and start to filter um, universal design throughout their home. There's, there's bigger elements too. Like if, if you really want to commit, um, you could think about um, how do you design a bathroom in your house to, to really promote, you know, security um, because a bathroom, we're dealing with water. And so to try to avoid any uh, slippage, um, you, you can install grab bars. And one of the things I noticed is that a lot of these homes have not been designed with accessible bathrooms, you know, in mind. So there isn't the backing um, where you would have, uh, you know, a two by four that you would then be able to take a grab bar and uh, attach it to the wall. So thinking about how can we um, 
have the internal wall support uh, include backing so that maybe right now we don't need grab bars, but in 10 years or 20, we might want to install them. And it's an easier transition instead of making all of these changes occur all at once. Um, so there's little things that people can do. And then there's big things, right? If you've got a space for a five by five shaft elevator, you could, you know, if you really want to invest, you could think about putting an elevator down the road. And obviously that's a larger financial commitment, but there are ways that can help support um, people staying in, in their homes longer. I love the the creativity behind everything that you're describing and but it does make me think that it's it's a shame that we have so many houses that aren't built up to these standards already. So it makes me wonder, you know, what's the what is the standard for the universal design standards in terms of how popular are they now? Are they are they commonplace? Are they required for new builds? No. And so I think they're becoming more popular. And actually, it makes me think of um, something we haven't yet talked about, but the concept of visit visitability. Um, so it's like visitability. <laughs> and that concept uh, discusses, um, which I think is also attainable kind of from a developer perspective. So it starts to discuss a few elements that make your home, again, support you know living in that home as long as possible. Um, so the, to be to, to have a to to, ha, to design a home that's visitable, there are three components. You need to have wider hallways, um, which are important again when we're talking about an individual moving um, th through the home with wheelchairs. So typically you'd have 36, but you could even go up to 42 if you really wanted to get uh, wider. Um, you can the benefit too is like even just when you're moving in and out or moving items, you just have more space, um, and then. The second part of visitability is having one bedroom and one bathroom on the main floor, um, or even a flex space that could be changed into a bedroom later on. Um, but the, that's more of the challenge because if the floor plan doesn't allow for that, then you have to think about how do you start to reconfigure um, the, the first floor. But the largest one that I think has potential to be kind of more mainstream is a zero step entrance. And when we're talking about um, ramps or a zero step entrance essentially that for in terms of visibility it means that there's at least one step whether it's through your garage or through your front door that an individual does not have to actually take a step in order to get into the home um, and the reason why that's so important and so valuable is because steps do pose a, a, you know an increased risk of a tripping hazard and if you fall um, you know you could potentially get injured and so if you have a zero step entrance into your home, you're just supporting, again, this autonomous living and you're removing barriers. And I think that it would be great for different types of municipalities uh, to, to consider, can we, you know, incentivize developers to have maybe, you know, a percentage of their homes, even if it's starting with one, um, you know, have like a zero step entrance or just finding creative ways to, again, you know, start to integrate more of these universal design principles into homes, whether it's through new homes that are entering the marketplace or whether it's through remodifying homes. Um, but I think that it starts with a education um, and an understanding of what are the potential benefits that these simple um, changes could make 
and then being able to kind of incentivize it uh, to people so that um, they also feel inspired to kind of commit to that. So I want to go to maybe kind of, I guess, the psychology side of of this discussion and, and maybe talk about how does the design of a home, like maybe a home that is not built to age in place, how does that affect people's health, their cognitive health, their relationships, yeah. their behaviors? What can you tell us about that? Yeah. The first thing that I think of is in the 70s, you know, they had something that was documented as the sick building syndrome. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. Okay. So it's like, it's essentially they were noticing that, you know, people were experiencing kind of discomfort or adverse health effects, you know, anything in terms of headaches or nauseousness. And, and it was when people were going to work. So they were going to work and feeling kind of sick and then going home and feeling a little bit better. And they, through studies, they, they coined the sick building syndrome and realized that there's a lot of the environment that impacts like our physical health, right? And which in turn then impacts our mental health. Um, And there's a lot of links to understanding that it can be, um, you know, we have adhesives in our products. We have chemicals in the materials that we use. We have, there's cleaning agents, right? There's so many things that go into the air. And if you have um, poor air quality, then in the actual building and the building itself, then you start to feel sick and that that impacts your physical health. Um, and, and that can impact, if you're feeling sick, you could have decreased productivity, you could have increased cortisone levels, you're, you're more stressed, you're more anxious. And um, I think it's even now more relevant and more pertinent because post pandemic, so many people are living in their homes. Um, and people now are not just living in their homes, but they're working in their homes. <laughs> and people, you know, if you want to age in your home, now it's even more critical because you have to kind of reconfigure your home to be now not just a place where you want to age, but also a place where you like to work um, to keep your mental health in check, right? And I think that um, upkeep and maintenance are important considerations to make sure that you have a healthy, you know, living and working environment. Um, And so it's thinking about, you know, something as simple as like adding plants um, to help absorb air pollutants or thinking about, you know, increasing your ventilation, opening a window, opening vents, running fans, having your HVAC system cleared out, um, changing your filters, right? Especially if you're doing construction or you're having, um, you you have pets even, it's just keeping the air fresh uh, within your home can help again, this, this, you feel healthy, which just can immensely aid um, how you're interacting with your built environment. And I think in mental health, when we talk about aging, like design has a huge impact because if we're thinking about individuals that also are living by themselves, um, you know, it's very important to feel security, uh, feel a sense of, you know, safety, um, because that directly impacts your mental health. And there are now so many advanced like home automated systems that physically deal with security from the outside, but just even integrating more motion sensors. So maybe when you walk into a room, um, you know, lights turn on or um, having activated fans or just, again, having the building respond to you as you move through the building can help to feel a sense of security. Um, And considering, you know, again, when we're talking about 
security, avoiding, like in, increasing fall prevention. Um, so how can we have homes that support our sense of security and we feel comfortable in them to walk around? And when we talk about fall prevention with, in terms of like architecture and architectural elements, um, again, to support aging in place, we want to be mindful that uh, hard surfaces, for example, are really important. Like we can have slip resistant flooring that, you know, can help us feel secure as we walk. So we want to stick with tile or hardwood. Um, we want to avoid carpet um, can can sometimes be difficult if you're wheelchair bound to, to kind of, it, there's more of a resistance. So hard surfaces allow you to move throughout the space um, and avoiding glossy surfaces uh, because glossy surfaces can, um, can irritate vision. And again, going back to that contrast, you know, having contrast in any opportunity, whether it's when we're thinking about if you have steps in your home, having a contrast between the riser or the runner um, or illuminating throughout your house, having special areas that bring light, maybe in the stairs uh, specifically, right? That just bring extra light. I think all of these types of elements can help an individual feel more secure in the, their home, which I think directly impacts your mental health. Um, if you feel more secure, you're you're going to feel safer. You're going to want to live in that space longer. Um, so being mindful of, you know, flooring conditions and when you transition, you know, taking this concept of zero step entrance from into the home, also throughout the home and thinking about a bathroom. Again, the bathroom is so critical because um, you could technically design a bathroom to kind of be a wet bath, if you will, where um, you could have a wheelchair that transitions with no threshold. So basically, it's kind of all one big shower, if you will. Um, and you can position the drainage so that it's a strategic, it could be a channel drain. But what it allows you to do is move easily within the bathroom. And if you have, again, grab bars or a shower seat, all of those things help to support um, independence, which, you know, helps to, again, increase fall prevention because, um, again, there's that link of if you fall and get injured, um, you're going to need different resources and you're going to have limited ability, which limited mobility, which then, you know, limits or makes it more difficult, again, to age in your home. So it's about, you know, how, how again, can we use like physical experiences and be mindful of the physical space that then helps our mental health. So there's definitely a direct thing. Right. And so for people who are listening to this episode and are thinking, you know, maybe I want to research this, maybe I want to try to make some changes in my house. You know, we've talked about so many things between design standards and visitability. What would you recommend as like a way to start small for someone who's listening? How can they take everything that we've talked about so far and maybe approach it, make it manageable. Yeah. Uh, maybe think about what space do they like to be in the most? Um, what space uh, do they like to be in the most, but maybe there are some challenges to it that they, I, I honestly would think about um, what's something that annoys you, right? Like, because if something annoys you, but you like to be in that space, you're less likely to maybe use it, right? So if you fix the problem, you're, um, you're going to then enjoy the home more. So I personally recommend that people think about what is it that um, is an, a, 
kind of a little bit of an, a nuisance or annoyance and see if one of those items then you could fix. Um, if not, I think about uh, really room by room. Honestly, I think there's so much going on right now and we're all, you know, this again, post pandemic world, there's just, it's, there's so, so many changes that we've all experienced together. And, um, and, you know, just to have like empathy and to, to think about again, to, to have empathy with yourself, right? So to think about again, this, your home is a space for you and a place where um, the happier you are in your home, the happier you will be. So I would encourage the, the listeners, like if there's something that's bothering you, fix that thing first <laughs> and then maybe take it room, one room at a time, um, you know, so kind of areas like that. Or another school of thought would be take it one product at a time. You know, if you really want to switch out your floors, um, take it one product at a time. So I'd, I'd, I'd allow like really, um, I, I'd encourage the youth, the, the homeowner to think about what, um, what what would be the biggest kind of change that they think would bring them the most happiness and then in, in, and go for it um, through that through that lens. I love that. I think that makes it a lot easier to approach. So this last question that we have is the question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. Um, and it's what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from your perspective in design and merchandising? Yeah, well, you so, I get excited about a lot of things. Um, and one of the things, since I teach in the design and merchandising department, and I specifically teach in the interior architecture program at CSU. Um, and I'm also faculty affiliated with the Nancy Richardson Design Center, which is a very, it's a new building, very innovative techniques. Um, and they promote a lot about design thinking and human-centered design. And one of the classes, uh, that I teach in the architecture program is a 3D modeling course. So I'm responsible for making sure that these students know how to utilize Revit, which is a parametric building program. Um, and in what's nice about it is I also, the, the course that I teach in at the RDC um, is the capstone transdisciplinary um, course where we have students that are all different majors working together to problem solve. And it just so happened that um, last year's project, the students used, we had interior architecture students along with a wealth of other majors, I think almost 10 different majors um, across campus. They all worked together to design and build a tiny house on wheels. <laughs> it was amazing. It was a three credit class, which probably should have been like a 12 credit class, <laughs> but the students worked so hard and you know, they built a home that was actually sold to CSU alumni, a couple that um, is living in the home. And, and the reason why I think this is so important is because it brings together concepts of, you know, timely concepts of, again, the need of affordable housing in, in Colorado, like the, the medium home average is 500,000 that might not be attainable to you know, that's not attainable to all people. So we have to think about how can we integrate alternative housing options, alternative housing um, solutions for all people to promote home ownership. Because I think, again, there's so much um, passion and so much pride with being able to own your own home um, and opportunity that, again, we have to think about how can we provide um, 
and, and afford Coloradoans different opportunities. And I love, uh, I'm so grateful because we got to, the, the class went really well. And so we got the opportunity to rerun the course. Um, and so this time around, I've challenged the students to think about how can we integrate more sustainable features, uh, more sustainable materials that promote, um, you know, again, healthy living, and how can we integrate accessible design? Um, and so if we're talking about a tiny house on wheels, we need to be able to think about a ramp. And again, our limited space, I've told my students, I think it's harder to design small than larger because when you design small, every inch matters, you know, everything, uh, everything matters. Um, all the space matters. How does one drawer uh, pull out and what is it touching, you know? So you have to be very efficient and effective with your use of space. And so I'm really looking forward um, to this semester because the students are actually um, integrating true uh, human-centered design. So what we're doing is, again, in conjunction with the, the Revit class that I teach, um, you, if you have a 3D model, you can create virtual reality. Um, and so we're actually this semester going to, um, we're seeking older adults. So if anyone is interested uh, that's listening and wants to be a part of it, don't hesitate to email me. Um, we are looking for older adults that are gonna come in and actually put on VR headsets and walk around the tiny house design, the accessible tiny house design to tell the students what is it that they love or what is it that they think uh, could make the space more effective from an older adult perspective. And then we're going to have the students integrate that feedback and data uh, to then be able to come up with the finalized design that then they will build in the future. And again, our intention is to sell this home um, so that another Coloradoan can um, live in, in this accessible tiny house. So to me, I think when I think about the future, I think, you know, I'm a teacher. So I think it's so much about educating, educating our students, um, educating the public about how these concepts can um, can be impactful. And, you know, not everyone may benefit from this. You know, not everyone, people, I like to think, you always need to pick and choose what benefits you. Um, but I think it, awareness is really critical because if you're not aware, you don't, you don't have that choice to make. Um, so I'm just really excited to be able to um, have this avenue and kind of vehicle, no pun intended, <laughs> that's kidding, pun intended, um, of the tiny house on wheels that, you know, now we're looking through through it, through an affordable lens and through it, um, through an accessible lens and a sustainable lens um, to, again, just be able to promote um, how can we, how can we create alternative housing solutions for Coloradoans and taking it a step further, um, just because I've always been so interested in, in policy and and thinking about could tiny homes in the future be considered accessory dwelling units? Um, tiny homes on wheels, could they be, again, accessory dwelling units that, uh, you know, again, we'd need amendments and land use code updates to be changed and uh, amended. But if they were, the potential that it could bring to communities is if you have an older adult that's living in a bigger home that wants to maybe uh, have a live-in nurse come and that nurse could live in that accessory dwelling unit. Or maybe um, you, the, the older adult wants to actually move into the accessory dwelling unit and rent out um, their home for you know, passive income. So so many different 
potential reasons why it could benefit. And, and again, it's up to constituents to think about, you know, what is it, what's their vision for their, um, and the, 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 you know, the local ordinance, local um, governments to think about what is best for their um, towns and, um, you know, but they, I think there's so much potential that it could, this idea of accessibility and these concepts of tiny houses on wheels and accessible tiny houses on wheels can bring a lot of growth and um, and an opportunity for for Coloradoans. So it just the, the idea of um, you know these concepts being maximized and shared and and really materialized and coming coming to fruition makes me super excited. So Thank you. I think that was just such a great answer and so inspiring too. I just want to thank you for coming on our show and just being so thoughtful with everything that you've presented us with today because I just think this is a topic that not many people know about. I didn't know what universal design standards were. I didn't know what visitability was. And so so just thank you for coming on and sharing what you know about it. Yes. Thank you for having me. And I'm so glad you now know, <laughs> you know, that's what it's about. So thank you. Thank you again. I appreciate it. This was so much fun. And, um, and again, if anyone's out there that's interested in engaging with aging in place, do not hesitate to send me an email. <laughs> yes. And we'll put that, that information in our notes so that people know what your email is and how to contact you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.